following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Thank you for coming today. Ezekiel chapter 5 this morning is where our reading is. Ezekiel chapter 5. And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor and pass it over your head and your beard, then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city, when the days of the siege are finished. Then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw out a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, have not walked in my statutes nor kept my judgments nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I, even I, am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Now listen, this is going to get graphic in the next verse or two. But notice the reasoning that the Lord uses. The people of Israel were given the service of the sanctuary. They were given the prophets, the law, the statutes, all the revelation of God, and yet they rebelled against him more than even the nations about them. They were highly responsible because they had been given much, and now they were going to be beaten with many blows because they did not follow that which they had given. So... Their stewardship of the oracles of God had failed, and because of that, they were even more responsible than the nations around. And it seems from our reading here that they were even worse than the nations around them, which is a terrible thing to think that the people of God, supposedly people of God, were worse than the pagans about them. Verse number 10, Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst, and sons shall eat their fathers, And I will execute judgments among you, and all of you who remain I will scatter to all the winds. Now, if you're not familiar with the history of this, it might be good to turn to the book of Lamentations and read those few chapters there, and you will see that, in fact, during the siege, after the siege or toward the end of it, that the people of Israel did resort, it appears, to cannibalism in order to survive. That tells you how bad it was. Verse 11, Therefore, as I live, says the Lord, God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, you know, read idolatry, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. Boy, when God says that, it's a bad situation, isn't it? One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst, and one third shall fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. So that's what the hair was an illustration of. One third of of Ezekiel's hair, the other third, the other third, and then a little remnant held behind. Verse 13, Thus shall my anger be spent, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it at my zeal, sorry, in my zeal, when I have spent my fury upon them. Moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson 
and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Let me just mention one other thing that comes to my mind as an application of this to our understanding of the doctrine of salvation. Uh, In verse number 13, the Lord says, He will spend His anger upon them. His fury will rest upon them. He will be avenged. I, will, I have spoken of my zeal. When I have spent my fury upon them. Now, I want you to think about the song we just sang, Behold the man upon a cross. Upon him was spent the fury of God against sin. And that is why you can sit here today and be redeemed by the blood of Christ. God's fury was spent upon him, that it might not be spent upon you. May God be blessed by the reading of his word this morning. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Titus 2 again. This should be our final message in Titus 2. We have been, now this will be our third time in verses 11 to 15. And for good reason, as I've mentioned, I'm encouraging you to memorize this section of verses from 11 through 15, especially 11 through 14, but for, 15, for me, 15 is also significant because it informs Titus and his pastoral trainees and thus all pastors beyond him in history uh, what they should be doing with this, uh, we'll call it information for now, but it's far more than mere information to share with their church. We saw in uh, chapter 2, verse number 11, Christ's saving grace. Notice it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And in verses 12 and 13, we saw his teaching grace. This grace that appeared, that brought salvation, teaches us that denying ungodliness, verse 12 says, and worldly lusts, that's a, that's a mouthful. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so grace, the grace of God that appears that brought salvation, also teaches us that we should do three things. Those three things we detailed last time, which are to turn away from ungodliness, to fill our lives with righteousness, and also to look for the coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Those three lessons are taught to us by God's grace and are really the, in a way, kind of an almost intermediate foundation to the verses that came before. I say intermediate, although I think I used the words foundation or something like that before. We're going to see something that's even more foundational today. Foundational, this idea of God's grace appearing and and uh, teaching foundational to what came in 2, 1 through 10, where Paul told the church, the churches through Titus, look, you know, the, the older guys and the younger guys and the older women and the younger women and the servants are supposed to conduct themselves in a Christian-like way. To be, you know, Christians ought to be Christianly. They ought to behave like Christ would behave. They ought to behave holy in their lives. Uh, especially not just in externals, as we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 7, but in internals, internal uh, attitudes, feelings, you know, replacing anger, which is akin to murder, with love and concern, loving our enemies instead of hating our enemies or looking for vengeance upon them, having an attitude of forgiveness toward other people, even if we can't finally or fully transact that forgiveness because the other person is, is uh, intransigent, we'll say, is stubborn, rebellious, and doesn't want to admit their wrong, or maybe we don't want to admit our wrong to them. Uh, you know that feeling of 
of struggling against mm, sin in your life or not being able to make things right with a brother or sister or a family member because of some stubbornness like that. So he's dealing with issues of the heart, uh, issues of attitude, of approach to life, of how we think about life. But this is a foundational to that. So this is not uh, a, a legalistic basis. Uh, some still yet today try to make our lives um, directed by legal uh, instruments, if you will, like the law of Moses. You know, you've got to follow that. I'll make some comment about that in a a little bit here as well. But this is a grace or gracious basis of uh, life, of living for the Lord, not a legal basis. And we want to make our homes, by the way, like that as well. I know sometimes for little kids we have, you know, thou shalt and thou shalt not rules, but that's for the tutelage period, isn't it? You know, that's for the uh, upbringing. But soon enough, we have to come to a grace-based approach, a love-based approach to uh, the work of God in the people uh, in our family. Well, we have the saving grace. We have the teaching grace as underlying reasons that we're to live godly lives. God's grace is such a huge topic that we now have a third facet to it, and that is the sacrificing grace of God, saving, teaching, and sacrificing grace, as I've titled it. Now, we should note here that, as we get into this, that the grace of God or grace of Christ has appeared to all men. We see that in verse 11, has appeared to all men. But then notice that he shifts away from this all men terminology And he uses us and we and our. This grace that has appeared broadly to the world has a special impact upon us who believe. It teaches us to deny ungodliness, to live soberly. We should do that. It teaches us to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us. Okay, so you have... The grace of God kind of appearing in two different ways, if you will. One is to the world broadly. That's, that's a, a general call, if you will, of God's grace. But then there's the special effective grace, the effectiveness of God's grace in the life of a believer. Do you see that distinction? The grace of Christ is displayed and operates differently toward the all than it does toward the us. When it's experienced and becomes active in one's life to create salvation and teach us to live godly and to set our eyes heavenward towards the coming of Christ and his second appearance, then it's operating at an entirely different level than it does when it's merely offered to the world. You know, here's salvation, folks, but when you experience it, it's just... It's just gotten into your soul about 10 levels deeper than what it was when it was just kind of on the outside as an offer of God's grace. We experience God's grace in such a much more rich and beautiful fashion than those who reject it. We have not only a Savior, but we have a teacher. We have a soon-coming king. We have a great God and Messiah, a sacrificial lamb who gave himself to purify us and to redeem us, and it's that idea that's going to take up uh, the rest of our thinking this morning. How does God's grace appear to you? Does it appear in the first way? Just like, you know, that's what Christians talk about, that's what they teach, I've heard about this idea of grace, or does it appear to you to to be that precious, rich, glorious, tremendous truth that it is for every believer in our hearts? Is it external to you, or is it really, has it been internalized? Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Somebody who is kind of peripheral around the church, or not even a part of a church, or hasn't heard the Word of God very much, just, you know, the the grace of God is there, it's offered, and they don't even know that they're experiencing some of that grace in receiving the sunshine, and the rain, and and the blessings of life that God gives. Every good gift comes from God. And people out there in the world that even say, I'm an atheist, 
experience the grace of God, that, that general common grace, and they may hear of the gospel of grace, but when someone comes to terms with their sinfulness and recognizes their need for salvation, then they begin to see the depth of the riches of the mercy and the grace of God. And that's what I'm asking of you. If you're here or if you're online and you are saying, that grace seems kind of to be an external thing. For us, it's internalized. We've, We've grasped onto it. Why? Because God opened our eyes to the beauty and riches of it, and we received it by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming, as we call, born again, born from above, rebirthed, uh, having new life. Are you listening and you're saying to yourself, I don't know that. I've never experienced that. This is weird. I mean, you can experience the grace of God like this, not just in appearance to all men, but in a way that it teaches you, that it helps you to look for the coming of Christ, that it teaches you to get away from sin, and, and it helps you to see the glory of what we're going to see now in verse 14, where the Bible says, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Why am I preaching this section today? Because it's the next verse and, or verses on our, on our list. Okay, So I don't know if you're here today specially uh, to hear or you wonder, what, is pastor preaching this just because I'm here? No, I didn't know you were going to be here. I sat in my study this week, what study time I could ferret out of a no-electricity office uh, for a while, and uh, came to this message uh, in our series, not knowing that you would be here, but we're preaching the gospel of Christ this morning. We're preaching the grace of Christ. We are reminding ourselves, as Paul does to Titus here, to this minister who is ministering in a huge area on the island of Crete, that these, the churches need to know these things. They, not, they don't just need to know that they need to conduct themselves nicely, you know, be nice little Christians. They need to know that they can only be saved by the grace of Christ. Remember I said from Ezekiel that he took the fury of God poured out upon sin. This is what we're talking about here. It talks about the who gave himself for us. Each of those words is impactful. Who is the who? It's he. It's the, it's the God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is mentioned just at the end of verse number 13. That's where the antecedent of the pronoun is defined. We're talking about Jesus, our great God and Savior. This is the foundation of the saving and teaching grace that we examined in the last two messages. The who is very important, my friends. You have to have a who with a capital W. You have to have the Lord Jesus as a Savior. You've got to have the right Savior. You, don't, you can't just have any Savior. You can't just have any guy that comes along and says, hey, I'm a Messiah. You've got to have the right man, the right capital M-A-N for the job. You have to have the man Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and lowercase men. He is the one. If you want to be cleansed from moral filth and to be right before God, I mean, if you want to answer that age-old question, how can a man be right before God? You have to have the who of verse number 14. If you don't have the who, you don't have anything. This capital W-H-O, who gave himself. What does it mean to give to somebody? It means to, to transfer over possession of something. Okay, He did something to transfer his life away from himself for the penalty of human sin. Now, this is amazing because Jesus did not commit sin, nor was he an accomplice to sin. You know, he, he didn't rob the bank, nor did he drive the getaway car. He, is, he has nothing to do with sin. He's holy and harmless and undefiled, pure from sin, never did anything wrong. Can you imagine having a child grow up in your home who never did anything wrong? It'd make you mad almost, wouldn't it? (laughs) He was pure and true 
and before God never did anything. He was imputed, or what, what I could say, given guilt of other people. It was human sin for which Jesus provided. That guilt, he was imputed sin or constituted or made to be sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of God in him. That transfer, that really that exchange, that double transfer happened so that our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to those who believe. That is what provides our salvation. Now, notice that it says he gave himself for us, and we'll come to that in more detail, but he didn't give himself for angelic sin. Have you ever thought of that? He did not give himself for angelic sin. He did not come to give aid to angels. Remember that from Hebrews? But only to the sons of men. So those angels who sinned and became what we call fallen angels or what? Demons. They have no redemption available to them. When they chose to follow Lucifer and rebelling against God, they made their one final choice and there was no going back from that. Thankfully, humans, because we're a race of people descended from Adam and Eve, God has permitted there to be a substitute for us who gave himself so that we could have a way of salvation. So God could have treated us just like angels. He could have said, well, they're all sinners and they'll do, they have to do their own thing. They'll have to pay their own freight. But he said, no, I'll I'll send my son to pay their freight for them, to take the penalty of their crimes against not only humanity, but their crimes against deity, their crimes against God. So he gave. Not only did he give, but he gave himself, the text says. This was a completely voluntary self-sacrifice. He was not put upon by outside forces to make him give himself. He had no compulsion externally. But notice, too, that this does not mean that... How can I say it? I had this thought in my study as I looked at this, that it's not just that he gave himself voluntarily, but it was the himself. He himself was the sacrificed thing. You know, it's not just like he gave of his time or he gave of his resources, his, his you know, finances or something. He gave himself to some nonprofit cause or something. No, he gave, he gave his self, his body, his life for our sins. He laid down his own life. You know, he did not give up someone else or something else or a thing less costly. He gave everything that he could give. Everything, the most that is possible to give, he gave himself. And then the text says, not only who gave himself, but it says who gave himself for us. Think of Romans chapter 5. When we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Look, scarcely for a righteous man would one die. Why would somebody do that? Maybe for a good man somebody would take the bullet, but Christ demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He gave himself for us. He gave everything for those who had nothing. And on top of having nothing, were unworthy of anything in order that they might have the free gift of everlasting life. He gave himself for sinners. You know there are no other kinds of people for whom he could have given himself because all are sinners. Yeah, there's only one kind of person that Christ came into the world to save, and that is sinners. And it says he gave himself for us. Two thoughts here, very common thoughts with this word for, comes from Greek, huper, but in English it's perfectly fine to just remember for. It means two things. Number one, on behalf of. He gave himself on behalf of us. We were in need. He could provide that need. But in sacrificial contexts, the meaning of this extends beyond the idea of for the sake of or for the benefit of. It extends to in place of. 
And this is where we come to the idea of the substitutionary atonement. Um, I'll, you know, I just mentioned uh, in my notes, I'll go there since it's only a few pages hence here, Romans, or, sorry, Hebrews 9, 7. It says this, But into the second part, the high priest, that is into the second part of the tabernacle, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. So this blood was the life of a bull that was offered in the place of those sinners. And he offered that for them. Now, it was also for their benefit, but it was more than just for their benefit. It was in place of sinners. So remember, Christ died in place of sinners. This verse answers the question that my dear grandmother asked us, Naomi and I, years ago when she was still alive. She was probably in her mid-70s at the time. And she said, I never knew why Christ died. She had been to church in and out, Methodist, Catholic, various visits over the years. Uh, She had been married to a uh, Catholic fellow, by family history, and she never knew. She never had the clear conception of why Christ died. Well, the, here's an answer. He gave himself for us, and then it's going to go on to say why he did that. But why he died, he died for us. He died for sinners. He died to pay the awful debt of sin on that cross. And boy, if you don't understand that, see if Liberal churches might say, well, he died as a wonderful example of God's sacrificial or governmental kind of atonement or something. No, my friends, he died as a substitute for us. He died for our sins in our place. He bore the weight of our sins in his body on the tree for us to have eternal life. And when he did that, it says he gave himself for us that... And now, twofold purpose. Whenever you see the word that there, you want to perk up your ears. It's like a therefore, it's like a for. A twofold purpose is given for the Lord's sacrificial grace. First of all, what does it say? That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And secondly, what? Purify us. Purify for himself his own special people. So, when you ask, what, why did Christ die? He died for our sins. He died to give us new life. But furthermore, in more detail, he died to redeem us, and he died to purify us. So when you think, what does it mean that I'm a Christian anyway? Well, it means that you've been redeemed and that he has purified you. And thus, this is the real foundation for why we live following the teachings of grace which then teach us where the rubber meets the road. If you're older or younger, man or woman, servant or whatever your lot in life, this is how it looks to live like a Christian. Because Christ died to make your life look like that. So he died to redeem us. This means that he died to liberate us from an oppression. What was the oppression that he died to liberate us from? This is a very, I don't know if you understand the language that I'm using right now. This is a very significant idea today. Very significant idea today. There are lots of people who, when I say he died, he died to redeem us from the oppression of, and I, fill, I put a blank, they fill in the blank with political, economic, race, class-based uh, oppression uh, oppressed, oppressor uh, mentality. They fill that box in with that. That is what's called liberation theology, and it's a heresy. He warned Christian friends here and online that liberation theology is a heresy. It is not what the Bible teaches by any stretch of the imagination. This redemption, the Bible tells us. Do you believe the Bible? We do believe the Bible. It says, He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from what? The oppressor, the, the, the 1%, the other race? No, it says from every lawless deed. 
I want you to think about this for a moment now, a little more deeply perhaps than you have in the past. Now, when he redeemed us, redemption has the idea of a payment. But no payment was made to the devil. Some have suggested that. But rather, the payment was made to God, who had handed over humanity to the devil, in in effect. He handed us over to our reprobate minds, didn't he? Romans chapter 1 says, as punishment for rebellion. But this idea of liberation is not liberation, is not redemption from uh, political issues. Jesus died for you to redeem you from every sinful act that you have done against humanity and against yourself and against God. Before salvation, you were a slave to sin. But it's worse than that. Let me draw you a little picture that will help in in your mind. You think of the word slave or slavery. Everybody in this audience is already thinking of, right? Yep, 1800s, Harriet Tubman, uh, you know, slavery and the Civil War and all of that sort of stuff. Chattel slavery we're thinking of, right? Frederick Douglass, all that good stuff. Um, Bad stuff. But that slavery was a little different than the kind of slavery I'm going to talk about. The kind of slavery I'm going to talk about is even worse. How? Because in chattel slavery, you had a relatively innocent victim. I say relatively because all are sinners, okay? No, nobody's perfectly innocent, right? doesn't matter the color of your skin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But let's just say innocent victim for the sake of argument. And there is an oppressive slave owner and a system that buys and sells and all of that. You know, the bad guy and the good guy. But in Christian theology, the oppressor is sin, and that's the bad guy. And the oppressed is the sinner, and he's also the bad guy. You understand? It's not that, it's not that we're relatively innocent victims of circumstances around us or outside of us, but that all impacts our own nature, which is already corrupt from the beginning. And so the slavery that we suffer is a slavery with an evil master and an evil slave who is a willing participant. The evil slave in this case loves his sin. He loves to participate in it, he, he, he wants to have his own way. He's full of pride and arrogance. It's that situation, not the innocent victim situation. It's that situation in which you have an evil master sin and you have an evil servant, the slave, us personally, from which we have been redeemed. That is a powerful thought to me. God redeems us not only from an external enemy, that he wants to have dominion over us, but he delivers us, redeems us from the internal version of that enemy as well that's in our hearts, that's in our minds, that's in our very human nature. He delivers us from that. Now, the Bible says that he has redeemed us from every lawless deed, from every lawless deed. Now, I had a, a long back and forth with somebody who was, very upset with my teaching on the Hebrew Roots Movement and my sort of downplaying of the Mosaic Law. Because we believe here, as do all Orthodox Christians, that we are not saved by law, by the law of Moses, nor are we sanctified by the law of Moses. But some read this anytime they see the word law and they think immediately, law of Moses. But that's not what this text says. 1 John 3, 4, in fact, I put a long footnote on this to help our friend and also to help you. 1 John 3, 4 in the King James says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And so somebody reads that in English who may be tied to the King James Version and they say, Aha, it says the law. That must be the law of Moses. Well, that's not what the word is from the Greek. I'll just say it right now. The King James has a bad translation here, okay? Don't tar and feather me now. Do it after the service, okay? Uh, the, 
The King James Version is incorrect. The word is not tan-naman. The word is anamia, lawless. It's lawlessness. So the correct translation is something you'll find like in the New King James or ESV there in that 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 4, which says, and I'll read it here from my translation, New King James Version. It says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. That's the same idea that we are are facing here in verse number 14, that Christ has redeemed us from every lawless deed. It's not a reference to a specific kind of law, like the law of Moses or natural law or, I don't know, British law or common law or anything. Rather, it's a general word referring to unrestrained immoral behavior. In the last days, perilous times will come. Lawlessness, the Bible says, will abound on the streets and in the suits. I told you that before, didn't I? At the highest level of the political realm and at the lowest level on the streets, you will have lawlessness abounding. Lawlessness is, it arises out of a disposition that does not care about any rule of law. This sin is, is anything that violates the will of God, either in act or disposition, and this, that will is specified in Scripture, both by application and by direct teaching. So this could be a, a general reference to the law of God or more specific as to the law of your government. It's just a general, what I'm saying is lawlessness is, is a general attitude against any law, wherever it comes from, God, Moses, government, whatever it is. Okay, Our Judeo-Christian-based Law system is somewhat in concert, somewhat in concert with the law of God in many areas, such as theft and homicide and the like, although there are obviously many holes and many uh, wrong things in the law, say, of the United States of America. I mean, there's no law against blaspheming God, but you know what? It's still bad. There's no law against idolatry, but it's still bad, and although it's not adjudicated now, it shall be in the kingdom And eventually, before the great white throne, when people who are idolaters are there, they will know that freedom of religion wasn't so free after all was said and done when they have to leave the presence of God and be cast into eternal condemnation. Any breaking of God's moral code, New Testament or old, will be addressed in the final judgment. Some actions, however, of the law of Moses are not encompassed in this idea of lawlessness. Today, for the Christian, we do not have to keep Sabbath or circumcision or dietary laws, neither for salvation nor for sanctification. Okay, those have been fulfilled in Christ. And, by the way, never were enjoined upon Gentiles in the first place, were they? Yes, interesting. But in any case, an application to us, We need to sit back and think for a second about just how tremendous this is, that we've been redeemed from lawlessness. The mindset is gone. In fact, when we see people running around on the streets destroying things, we think, how can they behave like that? It's it's out of the realm of our thinking because we have been transformed. We've been made to think differently than all of that. We've been delivered from sin and chaos, from rebellion and self-destruction and from ignorance and foolishness. But another application is this. In a a big-picture kind of way, I find it's easy for us, very easy for us, to fall into a critical mindset. Um, Well, first of all, you know, woe is us because everything is so bad. You know, we have that idea. But then we also say, woe to those evil politicians and rioters out there. You know, because they're so evil and so bad. But, friends, remember, they are enslaved to sin. They have the external and the internal master at work inside of them. In a sense, I hope that that helps you to have a little compassion, that these people who are running around like crazy, rioting in the streets over the past year, or acting lawlessly in their suits in their highest places of authority in the governments of our states and and nation are lost 
in darkness, blind in their sin. They sin because they are sinners and they cannot do anything other. They're unrestrained and lawless because of their very nature. Either they have to be physically restrained by law enforcement or they have to be transformed by the grace of God for that behavior to stop. Spiritual constraint is obviously the best way to do it by regeneration in the gospel. But we've been talking about all of them, all of those evil, wicked people out there. What about all the evil that yet resides in our own hearts? What about the we? We have to be humble about that and recognize we're just like them. By God's grace, we will be different. But not only did Christ give himself for us that he might redeem us, but also to purify us, to purify us. The redemption of which we have spoken is not the end. We are freed from sin's bondage. Not only that, we are cleansed from the dirt of sin and made, metaphorically now, whiter than snow. Psalm 51 uses this language. David sinned, confessing his sin, repenting, and says, wash me with hyssop. Oh and I shall be whiter than snow. You know, that's the prayer of a believer. We need that constant cleansing as well. The blood of Christ cleanses us, present tense, from all sin. Not just cleansed, past tense, but cleanses us, present tense, and will continue as we are in him. Jesus has worked such a salvation that his people become qualified for every good work. Remember how people were disqualified in Titus 1.16? Well, he qualifies us for every good work. He puts us on a foundation where good works are possible, are feasible, are sensible, uh, where it really makes sense in the plan of God. And in fact, he transforms us so that we are zealous for such things. We're not grumbling about good works and the opportunities that are before us, but rather eagerness marks our lives as believers as we walk with Christ, eagerness about the matter of doing good for God. We want to. We want to look for opportunities to serve God, don't we? We don't want to just be blind and just, you know, going on and saying, well, thank God for my redemption. No, you thank God for your redemption and notice that he's, he's, he's preparing us, purifying us for good works. Do, do refrain yourself, as a side note here, from reading this phrase, his own special people, where it says he's going to purify for himself his own special people. You know, don't read into that, the, you know, church saints, that Christians replace Israel, the people of God. No, there are two separate peoples of God. There is, there's Israel and there is the church. Okay? The point of this verse is not to teach Replacement theology after the nature of Israel is replaced by the church. The point of this verse is to teach replacement theology after the fashion of lawlessness is replaced by righteousness. So don't go off and and talk about Israel and the church on this verse. This is talking about replacement of your bad deeds out of which the Lord redeemed you to purify you for good works. If you want to do God honor, then you have to plan to do good works inside the home, inside your church, outside of both. Do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. There's no way around it, my friends. You have been appointed to good works. Now, you believe in the doctrine of election to salvation. I know many of you do. I do. Well, what about the doctrine of election to good works? Just as much as God has chosen how to arrange all of the affairs of the world, from beginning to end, just as much as he decided how he was going to bring the gospel to your attention, bring you to faith in Christ, give you the gifts of repentance and faith, he's also laid out for you a pathway of good works. Don't be lazy about that pathway of good works because God wants you to do those things. You've been appointed to that. And there's no time like the present to rev up your good works engine. Okay? You can't do it tomorrow. You have to do it now. 
Well, I'll get to it someday. You know, when I retire, well, you might not make it to retirement. You might be like some of those folks, they retire and the next day they have a heart attack and die. It's a terrible thing, but it is real. So we have to do what we can now. Let's close with this verse 15 then. All of this stuff that I've been talking about, Titus is told by Paul to speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Paul tells Titus in short, don't be shy. Don't be shy. You know, pastor, don't be shy about saying what needs to be said. Rather speak, exhort, and rebuke. And these are good words for me, good words for our brother who's coming up in the ministry, and good news for all of us who are ministering the Word of God in our classes, our Sunday school, men's prayer meeting, Wednesday night, whenever you have a chance to minister the Word. These are, these are instructions for you. If people need to be told, rebuked, corrected, taught, instructed, admonished, or anything else, Titus is to do that, and his pastoral trainees are to do it as well. And I'm, under, I'm, I'm understanding that I'm under the same instruction as a pastor. That's part of my job. Now, maybe sometimes it's uncomfortable for me, and maybe for you too, if you're on the receiving end. You know, for, just think of application. If I've said something to you along this line, or repeatedly said something to you especially, or tried to say something to you, and I'm thinking of a few different situations in our church family over the recent history here, um, and you've responded by making a change, then you've done just what God wants. But if you've responded or have not rather responded in accordance with the obvious direction and desire of the exhortation or teaching, then I would say that there is a big problem. There is a big problem. I, I, I don't say things in, you know, individually to people just off the cuff like I'm talking about I'm not talking about the weather now. I'm talking about, you know, brother, I think you should do this or look at this or think about this. That's not a passing comment. Usually it comes after much angst of soul and prayer and concern for the best for the people in the church family. Understand that such things are meant to help, not to hurt, to help you along the path of godliness. And I'm afraid that ignoring such advice is frankly perilous, dangerous. It's not a good thing. For Titus, by the way, you could imagine too what it does to the psychology of the pastor to have the word of God spoken at his mouth just ignored repeatedly over time. Think of what that does to a man. It's happened. For Titus, he's to take a page from Jesus' book. What was the page I'm talking about? Matthew 7, 29. He spoke as one with what? Authority, not as the scribes. So we'll look at that tonight in the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Titus, in fact, has apostolic authority behind what he's doing. Why? Because the Apostle Paul derived authority from Jesus. Paul passes this command on to Titus. So what can Titus do? He can say, Christ has told us to do this. Christ has told us to preach this way to preach with this, kind of, with this kind of authority, with all authority. Have you ever heard that phrase, all authority, before? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, the Lord Jesus said. And what is he basically doing? You go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and guess what you have with you when you do that? You have, you have Christ, because I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, he said. But you have that authority. You have that derived authority by which you can preach authoritatively the Word of God. And if you do that in a good way, you should not be despised by those who are listening. How do you avoid being despised? Well, don't be despisable. Be a good minister of the gospel. Titus, Matt, anybody here who's ministering the gospel? Why, why would people despise the minister? Because he's young, perhaps but mainly because he's teaching with authority. Can you imagine the weeping? No, not the weeping. The gnashing of teeth that happens out in the world when they hear somebody like me preaching that your lifestyle is sinful and it's wrong. You can't think like that. That is 
contrary to godliness. That's why people should despise, if any reason at all. I mean, they despise Jesus, so there's no reason for us to think that we're going to get away without it. I mean, but you know, Paul is using this very interestingly. When he says, let no one despise you, he's talking to Titus, writes it down in this book, and the church gets the book. Do you think the message would get to the church, churches in Crete, the people of God, that, wait a minute, Paul told Titus, let no one despise you. So Titus is supposed to conduct himself in a certain way, and we're not supposed to despise him. Without having to even talk directly to the church, Paul has talked to the church and said, look, you don't despise the man of God. The people hearing the man of God should not despise him because in doing so, they, they despise not him, but him. They should hear the exhortations of the man of God from the word of God and take them to heart. You know, if they don't listen, if, they, if they're not listening to you, if you're ministering the word, guess who they're really not listening to? They're not listening to God, nor the one whom he sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. So thus wraps up chapter 2. We've learned about Jesus' gracious appearing and his second appearing. We've learned about his saving appearing and his glorious second appearing. We have studied his saving grace, his teaching grace, and his sacrificing grace. Let us also have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Join me in prayer, please. Lord, I pray that this grace will be our portion in greater measure than before, and that we will appreciate it more than we did before, and that it will drive our conduct in greater ways than it did before. May you teach us, and may you save some, even here under the sound of these words, if they don't know Christ, and may you guide us and help us to appreciate that great sacrifice that came from heaven to earth. In Jesus' name. Amen.